This episode of the Sixth Sense Report contains some language, graphic descriptions, and may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Welcome to the Sixth Sense Report. The Sixth Sense Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, every time we have a guest, all I want to do is say I'm blessed, but you're going to give me a hard time. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. This time I think it's warranted. I think I think it's warranted to say that um, this is a special, special guest. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's special in, you know, we've been on, on Kazingram Dialogue separately together uh and and obviously well if you count uh featuring that episode on on our podcast uh technically ij has been on the show before but uh not formally not formally and and technically that again that was on his we were on his show that we just re- replayed so um, yeah and yeah and, and he, he's he's a special guy that's why i say this is a special special guest he's a special guy uh ladies and gentlemen welcome ij Macan moves. <laughs> That's what we'll call IJ Macan moves. Yeah. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's great to be on the show officially now, you know, and talking to you both because you both, as you said, you both of you have been on because I'm dialogue with Amos and I, and we've we've enjoyed your friendship as you know all four of us do this uh, on this journey of podcasting and media. <laughs> yeah, and sh- yeah, and uh, yeah, because. Uh, uh, Amos, Amos is on the team. Yeah, Amos yeah. and I, Amos and I, and then you got Joel and it's like the uh, you guys are like white and black, and we're the brown and white. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's right, that's right, that's, that's right. good, that's good, that's right. Okay, uh, so were you gonna say something, Joel? I was gonna say, I bet you. I wonder if Amos appreciates sort of the. I don't want to call it a free pass because that's not appropriate, like not the right word, but you know the fact that. You know, it's not two white guys having a conversation that allows Darnell and I to have conversations. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure as people saying there's probably too much white guys. <laughs> hey, it's not our problem that we make up such a large population <laughs> or percentage of the population. Well, according to critical race theory. Oh, no, that's, that's not one of those episodes. That's not, it's not, it's <laughs> yeah, not yeah. that episode yet. But um, but yeah, yeah. Sh- sh- shout, out, shout out to, uh, I don't know, a famous Amos, almost famous Amos. <laughs> Almost famous. Good dude, good dude. Yeah, so IJ, uh, for the listeners who don't know, uh, let's give them a background on yourself. Um, so I was born in India. I moved here, I mean, just under 10 years ago. And Yeah, I, oh, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. I just saw you tweet about the, the Olympic person who won a medal from your oh, town. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's from my hometown, Mirabuchanu. And she is the first Indian woman to, oh, I think it's actually the first Indian to win um, Olympic medal in 21 years in weightlifting. Wow. And it's huge. Right? And she was the first one, first one to medal for India. And it's crazy because, you know, where I'm from, Manipur is the state that I'm from. And it's, you know, where it's not like any of the other states, you know, all the other, you know, there's, you have like Mumbai, Mumbai is not a state, but <laughs> Maharashtra is a state. Um, you know all these other ma- major states they have all these uh, all the money coming in whereas Manipur and specifically Imphal the city or town I should say small 
you know, it's rural, it's, it's un- underdeveloped. So there are quite a few, you know, well-known athletes coming out from that area. And so sort of seeing this and on, on, on such a big stage, and for people to be like, wait a second, this woman's Indian? She doesn't even look Indian. I mean, that's the most common thing you get, right? Yeah, well, actually, I, was, I wanted to hit that point to make, because, you know, we're not on video yet. But uh, <laughs> for, those, for those of you guys who, who, who can't see IJ, IJ um, does not look Indian. Exactly. I know that sounds racist to say, but um, <laughs> when I first met him, um, I thought he was Chinese or something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got Chinese. I mean, there was a Hawaiian guy here in Ottawa. We're talking, and he's like, "Oh man, you must be from Hawaii too." Then and I was like, uh, "No, I'm not." She's like, "Okay, you're probably just uh, full Japanese or something." I was like, "I'm yep. not Japanese." Yep. <laughs> he was like, "Okay," then I give up. I was like, "Yeah, I'm from India." And the, you know, it's like, "What?" But yeah, right. the northeastern part where I'm from, the majority uh-huh. of people look like me, and we range from you know people who look more chinese people look more japanese people look more korean fascinating look, yeah it's 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 a it's a whole mixed bag of people and do you area. know the history of your people like and how how that happened um well so india became an independent uh, like got its independence and i might get this date wrong so if there's an historian <laughs> list i think it's 1947 or 1949 it's one of those two um when they got the independence the area that I'm from, so I belong to a tribe called the Naga tribe. And the Naga tribe, they're headhunters. Um, and they became a Christian tribe in 1899 when a missionary from Britain, his name is William Pettigrew, he came over. And that's a whole crazy story of like how that happened. But he came over, converted my, my immediate tribe, which is the Tonkul Naga tribe. Mm. and you know from then from then onwards you know after 20 30 years of him sort of his influence eventually the whole tribe converted and now you know the i, I believe like 90 percent are all christians but how how we became part of india was essentially when india got its independence the the tribe the naga tribe they had also declared their own independence and the British had given them, uh, like, assigned the document saying, oh, yeah, you guys have your own independence. But then India got its independence uh, a day after. And obviously, India is more powerful at that point, more um, unified, not unified, but more uh, more organized. And so they sort of came in and took over that part. I think it's strategic on their end, right? Because we're neighboring China, Tibet. So <clears throat> there has been the longest civil unrest. I, I don't know if it's in history, but it's, it's definitely the longest civil unrest in India. And that's been going on since 1951, I believe. And so growing up there, it was just, <laughs> you know, it's a sort of, you know, the sort of protest that, was, that's ha- that happened, you know, over the past year in the States and some here, you know, with the tear gas and bullets. Uh, rubber bullets that's essentially my childhood wow. right? that's just growing up as you sort of saw that every you know every month maybe every two months now when happened. you say saw do you mean like on tv in the news or like on the street walking oh, home on from the street school? like just on the street walking home from school um there was one time where we came home 
and our house was unbuilt, like unfinished. So we came home from school, and as I'm going up the stairs, if you can imagine in your head, you know, like uh, a room that's unfinished, so there's no windows, no roof, right? It's just like a cement uh, building. We come home, and there are army guys on our on our in, in inside of a house with their weapons perched on these on um on these windowsills because there might be a protest or i suppose there was a protest app going to happen so they're all sort of up there and you know as a kid you're going up you're like you think wow what is happening right now <laughs> <laughs> you know all these army guys in my house and they're just you know they don't really care about you they're just in there if you say if you said no to them to entering the house they would have entered the house anyway yeah uh there was that and because we lived on the somewhat on the main street like our house was just off the main street we saw essentially every protest that had like it was we saw there was one protest that took place which um which where we witnessed uh there was there were tear gases and rubber bullets. And that was the first time that I witnessed people being shot. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the army opened fire on these protesters right outside, right, right outside our house. So you just hear, you know, and then bang, bang. And these are these tear gas guns being shot, right? And they, it's, it, they look like a, cannons being shot. And you just see a trail of tear gas going up. <laughs> And some ended up in our house, and we had Korean people. We had, had Korean Americans visiting. It was first time in India. First experience <laughs> is, is getting tear gassed by the Indian army. <laughs> and we, you know, and then we saw the aftermath of the protest, and it was, you know, there was blood on the streets, and people were being carried off and putting into autos, or they called them. Um, People here are more well. Uh, they call them here uh, tuk-tuks, or what Thai people call tuk-tuks. In India, they put them in tuk-tuks or autos, and they put them in rickshaws. And people were like, you know, they were shot up. Some died, of course. And these army guys, man, they have no mercy. Because mm-hmm. essentially, what they have is in India, there's an army act where the army have greater power than the police in Manipur, the state that I'm from, right? So there are stories, and you know, some of them, some I know have actually happened where they come into contact with, uh, say, uh, a young adult, right? Mm-hmm. And they get stopped on the streets to do a drug, ta- drug, drug. Uh, they search for drugs or whatever. And if let's say the young per- young man sort of resists or does something. Or it maybe doesn't even resist, right? But he's sus- he's suspected of being part of the uh, underground um, militia. He'll just get shot with no no questions asked. He'll just get shot, and obviously, you just can't shoot people. So then they would place a weapon beside him and say, "Oh, he shot us first. And you know that's that's it. So we would we were always growing up. It was always like, okay, you know, you you. Don't act suspicious. Mind your own business. You know, don't go around trying to cause trouble with the police or with the army. Do what they say. Stay out of trouble. That was essentially it. And then come here to Canada and essentially peace. Now, in regards to 
you coming to Canada from India. And how old were you when you came? I was 21. 21? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, so what's the difference? Between India and Canada? Yeah. Man, huge difference. I mean, <laughs> like lots of sociological differences, lots of political differences, of course. Um, but one of the biggest difference, biggest difference for me was not hearing cars honking. I remember landing here <laughs> and, you know, got out, got out to the airport and I was like, okay, of course, we're at the airport. You know, you probably won't hear too much, too many people honking. I got out, total silence, complete silence. I got into the car and we're driving, you know, this is in Toronto. I landed in Toronto. So I, I, at this point, I knew what Toronto was. You know, I, I'd done my research, <laughs> big city, biggest city in Canada. We're driving on the highway and I'm, I, this is not even, I'm not even kidding. I'm waiting for somebody to honk because right? there's all these cars. What do you mean? <laughs> About honking? Yeah. So in India, essentially, anytime you're on the car, anytime you're driving and you want to make any sort of move on, on the street. So if you want to turn left, mm-hmm. right, you have to, you, you essentially honk before you turn left. <laughs> so there's no such thing as turn signals. There no, nobody uses turn signals. You stick out your hands, you honk. Um, if you want to go, let's say, let's say I'm going around a corner, okay? Here, you would slow down. You go around a corner, right? You kind of look left, right? Make sure there's no pedestrian. In India, no chance. You just bust right. You just take a bus. You just turn right, honk, to let people know that you're on your way here. <laughs> I'm coming. Yeah. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> you know, the... the, tra- the um, the street, the street signs. What do you call those things? The uh, the, the painted lines. They're just suggestions. They're just suggestions. There, <laughs> nobody takes it seriously. Do you so, have traffic lights. Yeah, but it, Again, it same exists. Thing. It exists. Suggestion. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it. Man, there are so many. It's some. I'll tell you a funny story. So, I'm I'm driving in India. So I I, I drew I drew, I used to drive manual in India. Nice and. Essentially, there's a, there's a street where you kind of come out of a corner of a street, and it's this huge main street, right? And if you wanted to get across to the other side, you you would literally drive your car straight through the middle of the road. You just keep driving, right? <laughs> I, I I don't know how to describe this to you, but imagine there's a cross, like a um, crossroad, right? Mm-hmm. Two two uh, two streets going. One is going one direction, and one Let's say the straight one's going straight, and the one that's cutting across is only going cutting across to the to the cross. You essentially to get through. There's no traffic light. You just have to keep driving your car. So whoever has the more, whoever has more balls to stick their car <laughs> in front, yeah, you just that's how cars stop. And it's it's so crazy to me. But that's like that's one of the main differences. So is there a lot of accidents, or is there like tons. a lot of bumper, like oh, fender, like you know, bumping fender into people? Benders, yeah, yeah, for sure. And then fender they just benders, drive away. Drive away, no helmets. My dad was driving back. My dad, my dad's a minister in India, and you know he used to travel from our house to the church, you know, every day. And one of the days that he was traveling, this is a true story. One of the days he was traveling, um, there was a motorcycle. <clears throat> that was driving up behind him. So if, if you imagine the curb on uh, the road and there's that lane divider, a, uh, a cement 
lane divider we have it here as well in parts of canada um this motorcyclist drove up on the sleeve of the divider right so there's very little space between vehicle and the divider and in front of it is a lorry truck or uh, like a big truck a huge truck carrying you know cement or sand or rocks i think it was rocks and he's not wearing a helmet okay so he drives up and something happens to his wheel or he gets a bit nervous and he his bike tips and he falls between the wheels whoa and, and the lorry doesn't obviously can't see him my dad's driving behind him behind this lurk and this might be too gory for some people so let's take a pause for put the on mute, put on mute. <laughs> yeah so the lorry goes over the guy's head and his head explodes oh and this is my um and my dad's on his way to the church right oh so he just witnesses this guy's head explode and you know he came home and told us he's like yeah today was not a good day Ugh. you know it's just but yeah people people are so there's so many different yeah, I, I, man you know. people complain about driving in brampton <laughs> <laughs> man, um, there are a lot of indians there too so i mean yeah i know, I believe it. I know. <laughs> but no honking no honking really? no there's no honking like that in brampton though. oh my gosh at least oh not darnell's are honking like that in brampton uh no 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 but it's like that in jamaica too well, what's funny is I remember Russell Peters' joke about like a Vespa being a minivan. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like some of the things that Russell Peters says. I know he grew up here in Canada, in Brampton, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's from Brampton. So many things that he says about India, even though he never lived there. I'm assuming he got it from his dad. Like his dad must have told him stories. So true. Like we, I grew up listening to Russell Peters in India, and I thought, man, this guy knows India so well. How? <laughs> and I was like, oh, it must be his dad. Yeah. That's good. So, um, you came here at 21. I guess yeah. the question is, you know, why and who did you come with? Like, what was the catalyst for leaving? What, you know, what happened when you first got here? Yeah. So, tell yeah, us I mean, I, I came here. I came here to do my undergrad philosophy, and I came by myself. You know, there's not. I think a lot of people. I, something I've noticed is uh, maybe maybe it's more Americans to make a big deal of like leaving the house. You know, leaving the house. <laughs> to do your own thing to go to college is a big deal but well, i essentially got kicked I, I wouldn't say i got kicked out of the house but when we got sent to boarding school when i was 11 and we didn't get this we only saw my parents um three months out of the year wow. so 21 when i was leaving i was like man i feel like an old dude leaving the house <laughs> you know <laughs> so, so we came here did my philosophy undergrad went and did my uh my grad school in philosophy and then decided decided that academia is too corrupt and not something that i wanted to pursue and so then i joined the tech world and that's where i've been hmm. yeah so then um so me and you we, we met at tyndale yeah that's right um but we, we didn't have any classes together did we I don't think we had any. No, probably, probably had mutual friends that introduced yeah. us. No, I definitely. Yeah, no, we certainly didn't have. I think we had Danny Soto. Danny Soto introduced us. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Danny. And Danny yeah, probably introduced you as like, okay, um, you want someone to debate? This is the guy. That's probably yeah, one yeah, of those. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you should, you should meet my friend Darnell. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, let's meet Darnell. And I, I think, I don't know if we had 
at that Tyndale, there's this like coffee, little coffee place. I don't know yeah. if that's the first time we met there and we talked. Yeah. 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 It was, it was, it was, it was a good, good, time, conversation. Right? good times. Yeah. 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 Good times. Good times. Blessing. Blessing. Um, I was going to say, um, in light of you studying philosophy, like with the show, how did the show come about? Kazingaram. Yeah. yeah so Kazingaram. Is, is that your like, getting into your oh i did philosophy now i'm in tech now i need something to you know fulfill my philosophy urges is that what drove you to the podcast essentially yeah essentially it's that essentially it was me wanting to me wanting to have philosophical conversations and keep up with what was happening in philosophy and in academia without actually being in there and i found that that was the best way and there were things while i was doing grad school which annoyed me to the brim right there were there were there were a lot of things in, uh, that included professors or uh, people you know people in academia in, in general i should say who refused to speak up for what they truly believed and would instead espouse views the prevailing view just so that they could get along or just so that they could get their next pay or not pay but their next raise or they could get into or grad keep their school, tenure. keep their tenure. Like, there were so many of these things happening that frustrated me. And there were conversations that I wanted to have or tried to have that didn't happen. So when I was in, when I was in grad school, I, you know, it was a very small philosophy group, but I was the, I was help, I was heading out the philosophy society there. And we put on conversation, we, we put on a, you know, we put on a few um, talks on free speech in academia, um, what what uh, in, in the hurry? This happened at Tyndale. No, no, this was in, at St. Mary's when I where I did my grad school. Okay, and you know, I thought this was like this was around the time Jordan Peterson was just starting, right? Like this is like early 2016. Mm-hmm. I, sh- I, sh- I should say mid 2016, and I thought, man, I'm sure people would love to have these conversations. Like this is happening to our school. This my at St. Mary's the the philosophy chair before I joined, a few years before I joined, essentially, from my understanding, was fired, but on paper he was asked to leave. And do you remember the Charlie Hebdo incident, right, where the um, where they drew the Prophet Muhammad? Yep. And then they got assassinated, right? Mm-hmm. So around that time, the chair of philosophy at St. Mary's, in support of freedom of expression and free speech, especially in academia and um, especially for journalists or I suppose, yeah, uh, commentators, posted this, the cartoon on his door, right, in support of these guys who were assassinated. And St. Mary has a, has a very big population of Muslim students. So these Muslim students saw it, or somebody saw it, and then told the Muslim students, and some of the Muslim students came up to confirm it was there, and they made a huge stink about it. And the school, you know, the students asked the professor to take it down. He refused. Then the bureaucrats asked him to take it down. They refused. President asked him, but then eventually, like board is like, okay, you know, I'm I'm obviously simplifying the whole story here, mm-hmm. um, but essentially they're like, okay, either you take it down or you're done. And to him, as a philosopher, and as somebody with integrity, said, "No, I support these guys and their freedom of expression." Goodbye. He's gone. 
So, you know, St. Mary has that sort of taint. And I came in, I came in, I learned about it, and I wanted to have, you know, just conversations about free speech. Literally, it was like, like, I wouldn't say nobody showed up, but like 20, I think it was like 15 people showed up, right? And it was advertised, I would say it was advertised, and the people, the majority of the people who showed up were not even from St. Mary's. <laughs> they were really? Like, yeah, there were <laughs> people from outside of the university. They were uh, local, you know, Halifax people. And so one guy came up to me after, and he was an older guy, and he was like, man, I'm so glad you put the put this, this, this talk on, because I feel like I can't have any of these conversations or these conversations aren't even happening. And so that essentially started spinning my wheels. And by the time I decided not that academia, I think it was too corrupt. And, you know, if you really wanted to do, to have an impact or to, you know, to really do something um, in, uh, to help people, it, it can be in academia, in my opinion. You know, there's just academics, not all academics, a majority of academics, philosophers, I should be more specific, and, you know, some theologians even, um, but this goes across all the board. I think a lot of people don't have skin in the game when they're doing it, right? There are a lot of academics who espouse views that if they were asked to live them out, they wouldn't do it. They just simply wouldn't do it. Um, and an example of this is there's a South African philosopher his name slips my mind now, but he espouses that everybody should kill themselves because we are destroying the planet through climate change. So he espouses that we all go and kill ourselves so you get euthanized, stop having kids. Now, if you truly have skin in the game, you should be the one who, who does it first so that we can you know, see it. But obviously he doesn't. He's still living. He's still writing. Um, and this is, a, this is an, that, that was an extreme example, but you know, there are lots of other, you know, examples of academics who didn't, don't have any skin in the game. They're just sort of saying things they don't mean, essentially, you know, to get the raises, to keep their tenure. And that just frustrated me. And, there were, and some of them I knew, or, you know, uh, my acquaintances. So I started it so that we could have honest conversations about things that mattered, right? In mm -hmm. philosophy or things about, Things that I was interested in that no, I didn't think anybody was sort of having these conversations. And you guys are essentially doing the more political side of what I, I'm interested in. Oh, political. Oh, I, I, I hope hate not. Politics. I hope not. Like, <laughs> we jumped on IJ. Like, that's no, no, I, I'd have to correct you on that, IJ, and the listeners, man. Um, we, we try to avoid the politics. Um, that's why we talk a lot about economics and theology, the ideas, um, the ideas a little bit that come before politics. But, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I think but definitely, yeah, definitely we get into po political issues. Yeah. But that's yeah, a good I mean, way to put it. Yeah. yeah you, Cause I, you guys deal say, with philosophy. Yeah. So, I mean, I, when I say politics, I'm not necessarily talking politics as in Justin Trudeau and his gang of minions who are. <laughs> <laughs> essentially, who think that they're gods and can do whatever they want in Canada. I'm not essentially talking about, you know, it's more broad, like political philosophy, sort of, um, uh, yeah, in that range. So <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's just, yeah, I, that, that, that's essentially how Kazungum Dialogue started. Like that was the, 
that was the uh, catalyst for me. And who do you usually have on the show? Like mainly your philosophers. Guests? Yeah, mainly philosophers, philosophers, uh, neuroscientists, uh, theologians. We've had and and people who are you know into into uh, the cult into culture or understand culture better than me, I should say. So, I you know I, a good friend of mine, Axel Kazadi. Yeah, shout to Axel. Guys, yeah, shout. I don't. Know yeah, yeah, because yeah, 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 we, he went to Tyndale as well. Yeah, yeah, he went to Tyndale, and now he's a yeah. professor out in Kingswood. Yeah, I know. And, Look at this know, guy. This guy's black you know, man. <laughs> black man Axel. Axel Foley. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So he, you know, he's a he's a professor. You know, he understands culture. You know, he listens to rap music. Not that that adds anything to it, but it's sort of it is somewhat provocative that there's there's this there's this guy. He's a professor. He teaches at you know uh, a Wesleyan university. The guy who listens to rap. He used to be a rapper. You know, he's. Mm. he's Mm-hmm. It's like this mysterious man. So, you know, and talking to him, you know, talking to Axel, for example, you know, Axel, I, I would say he would consider himself a biblical scholar slash theologian. I think that's what he would consider himself. So that, so Axel and the conversations we have generally revolve around what it, what it means to be a human person. How do we act in this? How do we act in the world? How should the world be? And what kind of world do we want to live in? Um, how influential Christianity has been to the world, which is, in my opinion, quite undeniable uh, as to how influential that has been. And, you know, some other topics that I, I, I think about often or, or I try to think deeply about is, you know, <clears throat> one, one topic that I've gone interested in is reading a research paper on psychedelics as more research comes out. And I had this guest a neuroscientist, uh, Michael. If Michael's listening to this. Michael's a professor at, at Harvard, and you know, I t- I was talking to Mike. Michael, he was one of the guests, early guests, and he was sort of telling me about the psychedelic research, and I was like, "Wow, this is fascinating." You know, there it's helping these prisoners who are who are serial killers or you know, straight up thugs, mm-hmm. helping them calm down and then helping them live, like. Um, changed men, essentially. That's the best way to describe it. And so, you know, we'll have people who know about, let's say, the research in psychedelics or, um, you know, what what the human mind is, you know, is does the world, how does the human mind work? Is it identical to a computer? Like that sort of topic are, are, are things that I often talk about. And obviously, the existential topic is something that I'm deeply interested in. So, um, I uh, I heard the story that I'm about to ask the question for, but I think it's a, you know, what? So, what's the name of your podcast about? So, because they have dialogue. Yeah, I was gonna say I think you told the story on the episode with your wife. um, Yeah, but uh, so I'll put that in the show notes page. But but yeah, for our listener, what what is? Kazingram and what, why Kazingram dialogue? What is that supposed to represent? Kazingram is the son of our name, uh, the, the name of our son, Kazingram, who uh, we had a stillborn, my wife and I, a few years ago. And, you know, that was a, before we, we knew he was sick, my, Kazingram, our son, he, he had a, essentially had a heart attack mm-hmm. when he was eight months, eight, mm-hmm. a bit older than eight months. And you know he died in the womb, 
And so before we knew anything about that, and I was thinking about you know leaving academia, and we had named our son Kazingram. And Kazingram in my language, Tanko means heaven or heavenly. And so when I, we were, I was thinking of what to call the podcast. You know, I wanted it to be something that represented um, conversations that sort of went beyond the day to day. And I was sort of playing. I thought, oh, this is a nice name. You know, it's a name of our son. And then when I found out that, you know, he had a serious heart disease, a very rare heart disease, mm-hmm. I wanted to honor his his name and name the podcast. And so, Kazingam Dialogue essentially, literally translated, would be Heavenly Dialogues. Bit with what the translation be. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and and yeah, and on the podcast with my wife, that's I think we briefly mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, you, you mentioned it in passing, but um, I, you know, the having uh, a stillborn child um, obviously is a very uh, difficult mm. thing to go through. Um, I know when, you know, in, in terms of my, my wife and I, when we went through, we've, we have two children. So when we were going through the, you know, the process, Mm-hmm. Um, we were very willing early on to tell people, yeah. you know, as, uh, let's say, you know, a lot of people wait till 13 weeks 13 and, weeks, yeah. you know, it's sort of the, the cutoff period for us, you know, our attitude was, or those that are part of our life, mm-hmm. if we go through something, obviously, you know, we're not talking about stillbirth, but, but losing a, a baby early on, we wanted mm-hmm. our friends and family to be there for us. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak to, you know, maybe the early on in the process, did you have a similar, um, approach and then, you know, what, what was that obviously very tragic and, and probably traumatic as well. Um, what was that like and, and how has that shaped, I guess you as well as the, the podcast? For sure. Um, you know, I think my wife and I are on, on the same page as you there. Um, and you know we we think it's very important, and I think people who hold the sanctity of life closely and dearly, I think have done a miss uh, a disservice when it comes to pregnancy, especially now in the age in which we live, where the you know a lot of babies will um, survive and you know make it till till birth. Um, where they've kept it to themselves and said, "Oh, actually, you know, we only want to tell people at, thir- at thirteen weeks or you know, whatever, three months in, you know, that's when we really know it." But in reality, human life—you don't really know when it's going to end, right? You don't even know when. If you're alive, you could die tomorrow. You could have a heart attack. You could die in a car crash. Your building could burn down. Anything could happen, right? And I think for us, it became even more precious that our son Kazingram had a name so we named him quite early on so we were we found out we were pregnant i think um i want to say maybe a month and a half in or something maybe yeah five yeah, six say, weeks give or take yeah give or take we you know we didn't know and we found out he was, we, my wife was pregnant and you know at first i was i was a bit shocked i was like what i didn't know like I was just, how did that was, happen yeah i was totally i was i was totally taken back by it uh, and then you know obviously as you 
get the news. I was like, oh, this is super exciting. And, you know, we went to the early ultrasounds and we wanted to celebrate it. And so we thought, well, what's the point of hiding it and pretending like, you know, this child is only going to, we only know if it's going to survive after three months, right? Where, you know, for us, obviously, because I'm died eight, uh, eight months. Um, so the, the idea behind it is just, you know, when you name, especially, I think naming anything makes, allows you to have a deeper connection with the, with the baby. And so when we named Kasingram, it was like, it was as if we, uh, you know, it sounds sort of silly, but it was as if we knew him better now that we named him and, you know, we would call him Kazingi and, you know, you could feel him kicking mm. and wow. he would respond. And, you know, you had all these connections that we were very thankful for that we had with him. So the, the way in which I think people are apprehensive to, uh, to share the news, I think is sad, but I, you know, I understand that a lot of people do have miscarriages. I think that's, it's, it's very common. I, I wouldn't say super common, but it is more common than people expect. And I think not talking about it, it hurts more than it, it does. Cause you know, when you have a miscarriage, even if it's a very young baby, right? Even if it's a small fetus, mm-hmm. the, the there is something about human nature such that, you know, the woman feels it, you know, you, you may not be able to put a quantitative um, thing behind it, but there is a sense in which you feel the loss and you feel like there's something missing. And even for the father, right? Uh, you feel like, I don't know, you feel like you've lost something in the process. And I think having that grieving process of, you know, if you had shared it with some of your close friends, then your close friends know that you've lost a baby, and they're there to support you and you know, to to be there for you. And I think it's important for people to be aware of that. And I think people should be more willing to share the news, the good news of being pregnant, much sooner than three months. You know. Okay. I, I, okay. I think it's I think it's important that way. And I think your second question was, how did it change or how, how did it shape, right, Joel? Yeah. How does it, how does it shape you slash, you know, to, with the podcast? Like I'm assuming, you know, like us, you know, there's an aspect of the reason you do the podcast is more than just simply, you know, for ourselves. Like, yeah. you know what, when, when Darnell jumped all over you with the politics point, yeah. I, I was going to sort of, that just to, for me, it's that people use politics to influence how I have to live my life. And so I'm concerned about the ideas that underline those things. Yeah. Um, and that's really, you know, for my kids, my family, their future, right? Like that's what drives me to have these conversations is because the ideas are what, sh- you know, it's like politics follows the culture. Yeah. Right. hundred percent. There's no doubt about that. You think about, uh, I mean, we don't have to go into this too, too far, <laughs> but if you think about um, the euthanasia bill that, that got passed a few years ago here, right? Mm-hmm. Back in 2001, when that father, I think he was in Winnipeg, I could be wrong where he was, where he um, essentially gas chambered his daughter in his car. Uh, you yeah. guys remember that? Yeah, yeah. I think it was like 2001 <laughs> yeah, I or 2002, I forget. And, you know, he, he, got, he got sentenced and the Supreme Court said, this is completely evil, this is wrong, can't do this. This is the Supreme Court. 
the Supreme Court what had a change of heart in fifteen in, years. In fifteen years, years, whatever. What they they just decide? Oh yeah, this is something that we we were strongly against, you know, philosophically in principle. But then now that culture shifted, we too have to change with it. And that's essentially you see that with so many things here. Um, I mean, to, in the world as as a general whole. Mm-hmm. And yeah. culture is plays such a big role that I think people people really either play dumb that culture plays a big role, or they are simply naive to it. And I would say they're playing dumb. In regards to what? Sorry. In regards to thinking that culture doesn't play a role in politics. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. it's important, you know, for you guys to have these conversations because it's mm-hmm. it's crucial to understand why things are happening the way they're happening you know if you get to the root of it you could address it much better i I actually would say i think there's a level of willful ignorance too Hmm. because it's what like the willful ignorance is their desire to shape culture through politics Hmm. right like look at trudeau perfect example right like essentially trying to stamp out christianity in in some regards Right, like he's trying to shape what people should think through his political actions, mm-hmm. and so to me, that's a willful ignorance. The fact that no, politics is being driven by culture, not the other way around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so, uh, Ij, in light of you know yeah. what happened, because um, uh, I I listened to the episode with um, you and Kayleen, um, yeah. and I listened to it, I listened to it with Tyra. And, you know, we don't have any kids and we've had difficulties in just listening to you guys talk about it was very helpful. Yeah. Um, and like, how did, how did you, how did you cope with it? Cause it was it actually, you had, you lost two children. Yeah. That's right. Um, and so, and so how, how, what did you do to, to, um, to cope? Uh, yeah. So I think the first, uh, you know, when we lost Kazingram, I, you know, I, I I'd lost people in my life before, right? My gra- I lost my grandmother when I was ten, my uncle when I was eleven, my aunt when I was ten, um, my uncle when I was fifteen. Like there have been multiple people who that have died, mm-hmm. and you know it's all. And you know, I would say I was still I was pretty young. This is all before I was eighteen. A lot, you know, all the deaths that I came across, and. <clears throat> But it was never something that I reflected upon, you know, even though I love my grandma dearly, I don't think I understood. I think she would, she was the closest person that I was with in terms of extended family members that passed away. But it didn't, it didn't really click what happened. So all that to say, when Zingram died and, you know, I woke up that morning, and, you know, I, I, I still remember very clearly, I woke up that morning and, you know, I usually just sort of, put my ear to to my wife's belly just to hear his heartbeat because we knew at this point that his heart was failing um <clears throat> and that morning i couldn't hear anything and i remember my heart sinking and thinking man oh, this, uh, uh, he must have died and that moment was yeah. essentially you know i, I it, it was a turning point for many things but you know, when we, uh, and I remember sitting at the hospital, sort of 
thinking that oh this must be this this is probably just a dream you know i, I just have to wake up and you know he'll be awake you know mm-hmm. and i'm sort of i'm holding because mm-hmm. and i'm thinking okay this you know he's probably just sleeping and you know he's he's got to wake up sometime you know he's got to wake up and you know he never wakes up of course and you know the, uh, the f- first few months was, yeah i would say the first few months after that to me were, were one of the most uh the first year you know was one of the most difficult year of my life mm. where i really didn't know like what the hell was happening you know mm-hmm. it's just you know this tragedy that i never asked for and you know nobody asks for it and there were people in my life who i as in the process sort of lost not because i don't think they were had any malintention but as a result of them probably not knowing what to do they sort of cut ties because they didn't know what to do mm. and that was like an added sorrow it's like well i thought you were my good friend like why would you leave me in the middle of all of this you know and you know we had good friends who stuck around and helped us and we were very thankful for them but what helped me the most of anything mm-hmm. is me going and doing brazilian jiu-jitsu and it's something that i've been doing since and essentially i became i to an extent became obsessed with it because it was the one thing in my life that i could control everything in like when i stepped on the mats i could control everything i couldn't you know i couldn't i couldn't lie about who i was on the mat in in terms of whether i knew stuff or not right because it was anything. blatantly obvious how much you sucked yeah exactly right? you'd come on and you would get strangled if you you know and you could you couldn't bs your way around it you know you mm-hmm. could come in pretending you knew something and then you know you could win something highly unlikely so that doing that and going there almost i went there you know i trained that first year after Xingam died i think if possible i i trained six days wow. out of seven really and, yeah, six out of seven days, and I would go. Sometimes I would go for like two, three hours, right? I would just stay and just go. And it was that one time where my all my energy and my focus was on improving this one aspect of my life that I could, to the minutest detail, control, right? So I could control the the speed at which I progressed, the speed at which I learned. Um, I could control. I could essentially control everything, and that. Yeah, that doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu essentially helped me f- fight my depression that I was in. It was a bad depression, and you know, it's not like I got diagnosed for it or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I think I know what depression. You know, is. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you know when you're going through it. Yeah, I, I, I the reason why I ask that is because um, you know you're, you're a philosopher. Yeah, um, you do philosophies, and especially you know, like you talked about having skin in the game and going through yeah. tough times as a philosopher. Yeah, and. What is it about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the philosophy of it, and yeah. that helped you overcome? It was the idea that when things get, and I don't know if this is PG. Is this a PG show? No, Miss Rated R, man. Like, yo, <laughs> let's go. We grown. We we sanctified and grown. Let's get it on. You know, we we eighteen plus when necessary. Yeah, come on, man. We grown up <laughs> or whatever man. the adult rating is on. Uh, right. Yeah, sanctified. Eighteen yeah. plus. Yeah, uh, you know, it was it was 
essentially it's that when when you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you get you get placed in very shitty positions. And sometimes it literally can feel like you're about to die if somebody's trying to suffocate you, right? And you're trying to get out or if they're like they're really being tough and sort of applying tremendous pressure on you on your chest. Oh man, it it feels terrible. It feels like you're suffocating. And essentially in those moments, to me, when that happened, it was it was an analogy to my life mm. of whether I was gonna make it and and not you know not um and not do something stupid uh, in my life. Right? Was I gonna decide to continue living and you know fighting for my life and sticking to it and getting out of this, or would I just give up? So every time I went back, it was a reminder for me to keep fighting and to not give up. You know, there's no point giving up. If you give up, that's it. You know, there's no more life if you give up. Okay, so sorry. And oh no, sorry. What you're gonna say? Yeah, it was just it, that was that was one of the main things of why I went back and how that helped me. Yeah. Uh, no, I was I was asking I was gonna ask that. Uh, what is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for people who are like, hold on. What? Oh, what's happening? What's that? <laughs> what, 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 what makes it unique than other fighting styles? Yeah. Uh, so Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I would describe it as a systematic approach to ground fighting, where each positional increment or improvement leads to either the breaking of your opponent's limbs or strangling oh. them. Right. Okay. So oh. the whole point of the game <laughs> is to get into to find yourself in, in in a dominant position such that you have isolated your opponent's limbs and are applying breaking pressure that either their wrist breaks or it's it's not really a, I mean it can break but generally it'd be like ligaments essentially or like dislocating people's arms shoulders wrists uh, you can't break people's people's femurs um um yeah. So, or strangle them, of course. And if you strangle them, obviously you let you let it go. There have been people that I've put to sleep because they didn't tap. That you know, I didn't know that they were being strangled, so they got put to bed. And then I realized, <laughs> like a second later, it's like, oh, this guy's not moving. I let go and totally asleep. Right. So <laughs> that's what Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is. And most, like, if you watch UFC, every single person in the UFC practices brazilian jiu-jitsu um on some level right whether they practice it formally like i would formally in, in, in terms of only doing that thing uh just like every ufc fighter knows how to box but they don't formally some of them formally don't practice boxing they just do mixed martial arts which mm. includes boxing jiu-jitsu and wrestling or muay thai you know so mm -hmm. that that is what it is for anybody who didn't know what <laughs> jiu-jitsu so based on what you said, uh, I I think there's a fair follow-up question of like, how often are there injuries in the gym? Because, you know, it's sort of, you're like, oh yeah, they break arms. Like, yeah. now, my, my <laughs> like, you know, break broken limbs. Like in general, if I'm not mistaken, for the most part, you're getting to the point of like right before that and then the person taps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the wise thing to do for sure because you want to come back and train. But in terms of injury, I would say... I, pro you know, I unfortunately 
you know, it's I'm I'm not a young buck in terms of like my <laughs> age, right? Anymore. So there are like there are guys that, that I train with who are, you know, some like the youngest guy that I know. I believe he's 15, and I, and I just came back from the gym today after training and recording this. Uh, so there was a 15 year old and a 16 year old, uh, you know, and then we have my my our head coach Tim. He's I believe like in his 40s, mid 40s, and then there are me and then some of my friends who are sort of in the in the late 20s, early 30s. Um, so in terms of injury, I unfortunately have um, sustained more injuries than I would have liked. <laughs> One probably because I, I think I I was a bit too. Uh, I was experimenting a lot, and as a result of that, I sort of injured myself. So I have both my LCLs tore, and then my rotator cuff recently tore. Um, and then I tore my my left. I think it's called like the posterior ligament in your ankle. Okay, but oh. but all that to say, like you know, it's I wasn't doing any. I I'm, yeah, I mean, one was so sort of foolish. Where my shoulder, my rotator cuff tore. I was wrestling somebody much bigger than me, and I shot for a takedown, and then they sprawled on my shoulder, and it just kind of popped off oh. completely. But other than that, you know, it's, injuries are pretty rare if you have good training partners. But if you have a very spazzy newcomer, you could sustain an injury if you if you too are also new. But if you're going a spazzy dude with a, you know, somebody who's a bit more seasoned, the they'll, one who's they'll smarten get, the spazzy person up real quick. Yeah, I mean, it all, <laughs> almost always happens, right? <laughs> you come in somebody who's like you know 100 and, 190 pounds athletic you know they're like oh yeah i did so and so sports and I'm like okay cool and you go and you start you know rolling we call it rolling and then boom like you know 30 seconds in they're getting strangled they're like what oh, let's do that again let's do that again <laughs> go back and they get strangled again they're like, oh what that doesn't make sense and you could sort of happen for five minutes and then by the end of it they're either never come back which has happened <laughs> Or they're like, okay, I guess there's something here to learn. And, <laughs> or they took a huge piece of humble pie. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and baked it very slowly in their house. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think, I think this transitions well to uh, the topic of, uh, let's say, police brutality. And um, the I think it was New York or, or one yeah, of the states made uh, chokeholds illegal. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and I think... Um, you know, we can use that as sort of a launch pad into, you know, jujitsu as a, a solution to some extent to police brutality. Yeah. Um, but but I wanted to get your take just to start on on the idea of making chokeholds illegal. Is that going to make people safer or or less safe? I, so so it was definitely New York. So New York did that, and they also they I th I think it just got repealed. But they had a law. They had just voted in the law maybe like a year or so ago where. Right after the George Floyd incident happened, um, New York said, "Oh yeah, you can't place, you can't place any limbs on a down opponent, on uh, any limb on any limb on a, a person's um, upper body." Which, if you know anything about grappling, if you know anything about controlling people on the ground, if you are unable to do that, there's Zero essentially ability. <laughs> zero ability to control a, a, 
a a a a an adrenaline pumped person who's athletic or that they don't even have to be athletic right because if you can't if, adrenaline alone yeah uh, adrenaline alone can do there's so many video, there are plenty of people can type this up if, if you type up like um i think the best place you find it is if you type in like gracie breakdown police incidents or something and you'll find multiple videos of police who unfortunately didn't get enough training or never had training at all trying to control a resisting suspect and there's one particular video in my mind right now and i'll get into joel your question but uh this uh two two uh, highway patrolmen pulled over this car and they were trying to arrest this dude okay and the guy's not even he's he's not huge or anything just like mid-sized six foot maybe two cops who were probably around the same height they're bigger they're trying to maintain this guy on the ground and the one mistake that people do i mean I shouldn't say people, police specifically who are untrained, what they'll do is when they try to put a handcuff on some on a ground opponent, mm-hmm. they will turn the opponent onto their belly, right? Without mm-hmm. any control. And the moment you do that on a down opponent with no control, upper body control, what essentially happens is you're giving them the easiest escape, which is for them to go on all fours and table themselves up. Once mm-hmm. you get somebody who's uncontrolled on all fours, You've they just can lost. posture up. Yeah, they can posture up and make a book. And, you know, you'll see clear examples of this if you watch the UFC. And, you know, if somebody's trying to take, you know, if they're beating, you know, if two, two guys are fighting, the guy down is uncontrolled. If he is able to turtle up or get onto all fours and somebody's trying to control him by not actually holding him, they will essentially get up and turn around and they'll stand up. They get into standing position. So you can imagine this. You know, these guys are not UFC trained or, or jiu-jitsu trained or any sort of grappling. Now trying to maintain some guy whose instinct is to get up, table up, and posture up. And stand Without up being able to put a limb on the downed opponent. Yeah. yeah, so now go that go to New York and you're a cop. So you have somebody, say you have a, you know, a thief or I don't know, some, some guy who's, who's beating up, you know, random people on the streets. And you're trying to arrest this dude and you cannot place your limb on your opponent's upper body there's no chance you can control them unless you literally you can't even sit on them right so you have to handcuff their legs or something at this point <laughs> so you have to essentially control somebody what you have to do is if you get if you like this is if you're fighting if you get if, if you if you go to the ground and you're a cop or you're somebody trying to control the other guy who's on the ground what you have to do is you have to get, get on what's known as a knee on belly you essentially getting your knee one of your knees place onto your opponent's belly button or their sternum mm-hmm. and then the, the the leg that's not on is used as a base so that if the if the ground opponent is trying to push off you you essentially apply your knee pressure down and that when that happens and you don't know what you're doing you're on the ground you will essentially lose air very very fast and you give up very quickly in about like 100 seconds you kind of give up you're like oh okay handcuff me already right <laughs> i can't so, breathe i can't breathe uh, or, uh, or not so much i can't breathe i've run out of oxygen because you've lowered the lung capacity by continually pushing down in that area yeah or they've exhausted themselves so they'll just kind of give up they're like okay just handcuff me and you see there are multiple videos of this of trained jiu-jitsu cops who arrest people without even punching them at all just like poop take them down calm them down you know their knee on belly 
It's like the guy fights. He's like, okay, I kind of give up. <laughs> so he just arrests me, and then he just sort of, you know, passively turn over and they can handcuff him. Uh, so in New York, they banned this whole thing, and like in the jiu-jitsu community, people were like livid. They're like, who are these idiots making these laws here? These are politicians with no skin in the game. They're not the cops on the front line who have to deal with these, you know, some of these crazy criminals. What? And now mm-hmm. you're telling them that first, obviously, we don't want we don't want to kill people. We don't want to shoot people. Okay, so and you want to do the least amount of harm, but now you're telling us that the one tool that we have to do the least amount of harm on a, a suspected criminal is banned. It's totally illegal. So now, what are you going to do? What you do you have to revert? Your taser. Yeah, you have to revert back to some sort of uh, physical harm, right? Whether that's a baton on the head or I don't know what they what they would do. But mm-hmm. New York did end up repealing it. I think. A month ago, and you know, I've I have some I have some very uh, progressive woke friends. I, maybe they're more acquaintances. I wouldn't say friends. <laughs> <laughs> who who are the least trained? Right? They have no training in any grappling, in any fighting sports. They they know nothing about how to control a resisting opponent, like zero. And then they're out here preaching that police should not be able to do this. Police, we should have less funding for police. We should, uh, police are all bastards. As like one guy particularly likes to say, oh, if your dad, doesn't matter if your dad's a cop, your brother's a cop, they're all bastards. And that's all, like, that's all he says, right? And I had a conversation. I was like, yeah, what are you talking about? They're all bastards, man. They're all bastards. Like this guy, like, this guy has yeah. no experience whatsoever, right? So jujitsu, all to say, I think all cops should practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because you'll have less harm being done, less injuries to the policemen, less deaths. For sure, I would think less deaths because people don't have to revert to using their guns to control somebody. Or, you know, there's that unfortunate story a few months ago of a woman who accidentally pulled out a gun instead of the taser. Mm. The police, mm-hmm. that, was, that was a very sad story. and. And people can't forget that when you're in that situation, you have your own adrenaline. And if mm-hmm. anybody has been in any fighting situation, they would be a bit more sympathetic. They would be a bit more understanding to what pressure the cops have to go through when somebody is, you know, very aggressive. So yeah, yeah, training, no, that's a good tra- point. Yeah, training any martial arts I think helps calm your nerves a bit more than it would have otherwise. Yeah, it's funny you say that because when you think about the philosophy of combat um, and, you know, physical altercations. uh, So me and you have had conversations about this before. Um, So I'm 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 not a fan of um, mixed martial arts. Mm -hmm. I have difficult time watching um, UFC, Mm -hmm. but I'm a big boxing fan. I'm a big boxing fan, and um, and and my trainer uh, said, "Who's who's your who's your current?" Can- oh, come on! Don't get me started on Canelo. Don't get me still. I'm not. I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> this is not the show. Don't get me excited. That's a whole <laughs> other podcast. Yo, do not look. I'm already getting excited. That's how you know. Uh, so, but 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 my trainer said uh, to me, he says, "Like you know, think about it, Darnell. Like you know, like you said, there's a lot of people saying, oh, you know, like I don't want my kids fighting.'" Yeah. But 
my, my trainer said, he's like, think about it. If everybody knew how to fight, you'd have less gun violence. Oh, for sure you would have because at, at some point like at the end of the day if you have a problem with somebody like okay cool like meet me at the gym you know we'll wear these gloves we'll have these headgear and we'll go at it yeah um and then the second thing was a friend of mine who does mixed martial arts he said you know what darnell people are worried like what you said people are worried about police hurting people but he says people who know how to fight don't hurt people mm-hmm. people who don't know how to fight hurt people for sure. Right? Because you know what it takes to put a guy away. Yeah. And, uh, and, and initially, you're still in a defensive posture when someone is attacking you. Because, yeah, you're, you know, you're just trying to defuse the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I have this philosophy. I'm a philosopher too, IJ. I know. And, Both and, of and, you and, are. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm a philosopher. And um, I, I have this saying, you know, like, when people say, oh, yeah, you shouldn't fight. And I, you know, and I usually say, like, well... Have you had your ass whooped before? <laughs> like I have, yeah. I, I I have, and it, it was Tim's, and the dude was wearing the guys were wearing Tim's. You know what I mean? <laughs> so so God speaks to you in two ways, through divine revelation, um, and a good old fashioned ass whooping. <laughs> good old fashioned. There's nothing like that to bring common sense um, uh, to your noggin. You know, so it's one of those things. I think um, it. You know. Fighting um, and learning how to fight is, is important. I think it's crucial. I, you know, you, the, people tend to forget. I mean, people, when I say people, I, I, mean, I mean more so um, Christians tend to forget that Jacob wrestled an angel for the whole night, right? Mm-hmm. And if you, read, if you read the passage, it says that Jacob held the angel or God, or God God's representative until um, he was blessed. And that's why mm-hmm. his name changed to Israel. Mm-hmm. And if you reread that passage, it's, I mean, and you do wrestling, it's most likely a body lock, right? And when you get a body lock around your opponent's ribs and you hold tight, it's, you're essentially squeezing uh, their air out. And it's very, very difficult to move in that position. Um, you know, you either have to bite your opponent's nose or poke his eyes or do something, you know, like it's, it's very hard to get out. So, the idea that you should keep kids away from any sort of fighting sports is, I think, is a bit ridiculous. Like, I would, you know, my, you know, I love my mom, and my mom, you know, she raised us, but my mom is a hardcore pacifist. I mean, she's straight up very, very pacifist. And when we were growing up, we weren't allowed, like, zero, we weren't even allowed to watch WWE. Or WWF oh, at that point. Poor you. Right? <laughs> it was like we so we would have to go to my cousin's place and watch it. And that's how I watched it. WrestleMania. WrestleMania, you know, it was like Triple H. Royal uh, Rumble, Triple yeah, H, R- Stone Cold. Yeah, Stone All those guys, The Rock, you know. It, and we weren't allowed to watch it. And my grandfather, much like you, Darnell, huge boxing man. Huge. So he would watch boxing. And then if we came down to his house and we caught him watching, he'd be like, oh, dude, dude, get out, get out, get out, go, 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 go. Dude, your mom's <laughs> going to kick my ass, get out. You know, he would always kick us out, right? So whenever we wanted to do boxing as kids, like me, my, my brother and I always wanted to do boxing or kung fu. At that point, it was Bruce Lee. I grew a huge Bruce Lee fans. Mom said, no, as long as you live in my house, my rules, you can't do it. So, and then obviously I got married. I, was, I moved here, I got married, and I was like, 
my house, my rules. <laughs> and, I, and I started doing jujitsu, and that's when I realized, you know, it's one thing to be a pacifist. Like I, I have nothing against being pacifist. I would say I'm probably more pacifist than I'm aggressive. But one one thing I realized was in training jujitsu that you know there is a sense in which your confidence grows because you start to understand what your body is capable of. And when you understand what your body is capable of, you realize, oh, you know, I'm I'm not as I'm not as you know before when I didn't know anything, I would be relying on my size. Not that I was a big guy to begin with. That's a, that's a, that's a funny thing, right? But I would rely on something external to myself to make myself look bigger or stronger than I was or more confident. But now it's like, you know, I'm I'm only 170 pounds. I'm probably I'm trying to get up to 185. That's the goal. So you guys have to give me accountable. Since you're 180. How tall are you? Um, five eleven. So you're no, you're stop lying. I'm you're Christian. You're safe. Stop lying, <laughs> IJ. I stand next. I'm fine. You're not taller than me, man. I'm five eleven. Anyways, I tell you, I'm 180. Anyway, I'll get Anthony to edit that part out. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm 170, right? So I was 140. Imagine that. I was 140 two years ago. Do you know how skinny Whoa. I was? Man, Whoa, I, yeah. Like when you knew me, Darnell, even when we did mm-hmm. that podcast the first time. Yeah. In person, I was 140. Then. Really? Yeah, I was 140. So now I'm 170. And what I, what changed essentially that, that that time span between those two is I started practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I realized, man, I don't need to have big muscles to beat up people. Not that I'm want, not that I'm right. out here trying to beat up people. Right. Which made me go now I can work out because now I'm working out and putting on muscle not to impress or make myself look bigger. It's just that I want to, when I'm on the mats, I want to be stronger and beat up. Yo, <laughs> yo, IJ, I'm telling you, there's a saying, I heard this guy say this at the gym when I was, where I was working out and he said, you know, it's one thing to look like you can fight. Yeah. I.e., you know, lifting dumbbells and looking buff. It's another thing to know how to fight. Yes. And the dyna- just because you know, just because you're bigger doesn't necessarily mean you're a better fighter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for sure. I think you know, what's the point of having all those big muscles if you don't know how to fight? Right. right. Like you have all those big muscles, you look cool. I mean, I'm sure there are you know there are lots of social benefits. social um, <laughs> yeah benefits to be looking big. But at the end of the day, it's it's you and the mirror, right? When you look at the mirror. Do you see a skinny man in front of you, even though you may be like two ten, you know, six foot one? If you do, man, you gotta find something else. That's you know, whatever itch, whatever it is that you're doing, it's it's not really working. But if you do, you know, and I'm not saying martial arts is the solution to all things, but I think it is a solution to many, many things. I think if more people knew how to fight and understood the the damage that you could do. People will be more careful, I think more understanding and less willing to be aggressive immediately up front, right? Like a friend of mine, I don't know, I guess you guys don't know him, I feel like he <laughs> practices, he's a mixed martial artist down in the States, he's in LA, um, and he was at this recently, very recently at an Antifa protest, right? Because he wanted to document what was happening because he was in mm-hmm. LA and he was sort of never seeing any of the damage that Antifa was doing to downtown uh, California, uh, LA, uh, Los Angeles. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, RJ. Uh, can you just uh, clarify who Antifa is? 
Uh, I think you guys do just a quick job with that. Uh, it's like the they're, they're the short or I, for or a Joel. Yeah, Joel, you want to do it? Do a um, the anti-fascists who use fascist techniques to impose their will. <laughs> okay. All right. Go ahead, DJ. <laughs> I guess that was uh, <laughs> that was accurate. Yeah, yeah. So these guys, you know, they're they're generally the ones throwing Molotov at the cops or burning down businesses. So my the ones always dressed in black. Always, you know. Yeah, with masks. Um, all the ones that George Soros funds. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so my friend wanted to go down, and he's a mixed martial artist, right? Him and his coach, both mixed martial artists, they wanted to go down, document, because it's their city, the city they love. So they're down. And he was actually, my friend was trending on Twitter the other day um, because of what I'm about to tell you. So he's down there. He's a Japanese dude, okay? Man's a Japanese dude. Antifa shows up. And my friend, unfortunately, according to the Antifa, he's, he's wearing a gym shirt and he has lightnings, right? The, you know the lightning emoji? Right? Yeah. You guys know the lightning emoji, right? Yeah. So these Antifa idiots came up to him and said, Yo, you white supremacist, why are you wearing a, why are you wearing a swastika on your shirt? And he's like, it's lightning, bro. No, it's a swastika symbol. And you can see this. It's all on video. Um, it's a swastika, you white supremacist. And my friend goes, I'm Japanese, bro. He's like, no, you're not. You skinhead. And he's also bald, right? <laughs> so, so they call me a skinhead. <laughs> but he's, this guy's a straight Japanese. Like his, both his parents are like Japanese, like Japanese and he's Japanese American. He's like, bro, I'm Japanese. Like, no, you're a skinhead. You know, all this stuff. And then one of these Antifa people, this woman comes up to his coach who's a mixed martial art coach. The man's dangerous and starts kicking him. <laughs> like, oh, just starts man. kicking him. And, 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 and my friend's coach is, you know, you could tell he's just being calm. He's like, get away from me. Get away from me. And he's pushing her and she keeps coming up, kicking him, running away, coming back and then, you know, trying to do a blind slide hook on his face. Bah, bah. And he, so this man gets annoyed. So he has a bottle in his hand and he simply just swings the bottle and whacks her head. Right, as she's approach, she, as she's running to him, punching, as she's doing like a Superman punch, you whack on her head, and she's like, "Oh, he smacked me on my head!" And then the Antifa just stormed this dude. The point of the story is, my friend's coach was, if you watch the video, he was like extremely calm. You know, he was trying not to hurt this woman who is clearly upset at him, didn't know how to fight, pretending as if she knew how to fight, and kicking him, punching him. She even threw something at him. But this man was so calm. I was watching. I was like, yo, this guy is so calm. How, like, how is he staying so calm? But uh, I know, in my opinion, it's, I think, him knowing, him having actually fought people, knowing mm -hmm. how much he could damage someone, he thought, well, why would I kick this little lady's ass? <laughs> you know, like, there's no point here. But it's, it's that sort of the ability to maintain your cool in such a aggressive and and um and dangerous situation i think is a power that most people don't have mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. training yeah. mixed martial arts for kids i think is extremely important so if you have yeah. kids and you're listening you should send your kids to mixed martial arts <laughs> oh martial boy arts. i guess we have a lot of uh husbands and wives that listen to it but okay. hopefully it leads to some good conversation i think yeah. that um on the topic of you know mixed martial arts and combat and philosophy i think like even it helps to bring out virtue and courage mm. and i think that's something we lack 
today. Um, me, um, as an educator, we talk a lot about bullying. I, I see mm -hmm. a lot of bullying in the playground. Mm -hmm. um, and um, as, a as a basketball coach, there's a lot of bullying on the court. And I'm sure Joel, mm -hmm. as the guy who plays <laughs> hockey, I'm sure there's bullies in your men's hockey league. I'm sure of it, <laughs> right? So the point is bullies are everywhere. And um, there's always an opportunity for someone to be courageous and stand up. And I think, and I, I got into a debate with uh, my, one of my professors about this, um, that not everybody is equipped to be courageous. Mm. Not everybody's mm. equipped. Because I'm like, oh yeah, just stand up against bullies and stand up to the bully. And I'm like, well, but when you stand up to bullies or like, like, like your, um, your friend did to the woman, yeah. um, eventually it escalates. Yeah. Right. Cause if you say to a bully, stop, the bully's going to say, or, or what, what? Or, what? <laughs> <laughs> or what, like, you know what I mean? Or, or what, what? You do about you're like, well, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm going to tell the teacher, like, yeah, uh, yeah. That doesn't yeah, help that, your case that, at all. <laughs> pardon? That wouldn't help your case at yeah, all. Yeah. Well, especially if it's all, especially if it's off school property, yeah. you know what I mean? But, mm -hmm. but, but at the point I'm making is that, um, at that point it, it's going to escalate and you have to be ready to scrap um in all forms and, and we've talked about this before ij so if you're you know if it's on your if you're on your feet and you're using your hands and you're boxing you got to know how to use your hands mm -hmm. if it goes to the ground you got to know your how to grapple in, in your brazilian jiu-jitsu and so forth mm -hmm. and the point i'm making is just that um when you are equipped you can be courageous and yes i'm i'm not saying you have to win we're not saying you have to beat people up I'm not saying you have to come out the victory because as Christians, Jesus Christ is the perfect example of courage. Um, he got his butt whooped. He got nailed to a cross and he still won. Right? So for us, we're, we're, we're not, we're not out here trying to fight to win fights, but if somebody, if a woman's being picked on, if someone's, and you want to stand up for a woman, you want to stand up for a kid, you want to stand up for your kids or your wife, someone's disrespecting your wife. Yeah. You know, you can at least say, hey, that's enough. Mm. Or what? All right, well, yo, well, we're going to scrap. I might lose, but we're not, but I'm not having it. Yeah. You know, encourage is contagious and yeah, it takes a lot. Is contagious. I think that, that that's a great point, Darnell. Courage is very contagious. Mm -hmm. And people really do underestimate how contagious it can be, right? You just need one person to stand up to, it could be political bullying. It could be any sort of bullying on the, on the courts anywhere. You just sort of need somebody to stand the up. The political realm. Vaccinations. Yeah. 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 I mean, that. yeah, it is sort of bullying, right? You have, yeah, you have a lot of people pressuring you know whether whether you're against it or for it there's there's no sense in which it makes sense where they're saying oh you know uh, if you if you're not vaccinated then you're you're out here killing everybody and, and their grandmother yeah and you know it's it's bullying it where uh, a political leader would say, and then we're going to come door to door and make sure that you get your vaccine right? that's like that's i was watching a video yeah i think it was like andrew como yep the new york guy who was saying that i was like what you can't just do that. But anyways, the point being, I think, you know, a good martial artist is a good philosopher and a good philosopher is a good martial artist. Um, 
And to me, this is very controversial for me to say in uh, an unpopular opinion. Hey, 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 man! We're we're, we're um, <laughs> we have a policy. We're um, controversial for the sake of godliness. Yeah. So I think <laughs> I think pe- people. I think most philosophers are are not good philosophers, unfortunately, because they don't really know what it's like. You, you, there's there's a divorce that has happened in philosophy, and I, I you know it, it would even go into theology, where people have lost what it means to be human. Because if you're just sitting at your desk, not doing anything, and let's say you're just typing, that's what the majority of us do now for work, <laughs> and you don't do any sort of physical exercise. I mean, physical exercise is a great step, but doing martial arts, I think, I think there's a good reason why the Chinese have always equated doing martial arts into philosophy because they knew very early on and and the Greeks and the Athenians, right? Plato, Socrates, they all did martial arts, uh, wrestling specifically for them. Yeah, yeah, Plato was a wrestler. Big wrestler. I mean, his name Plato means broad shoulder because he had huge Mm -hmm. shoulders because he was a wrestler. Mm -hmm. And doing those things, what it does, it it connects you to every part of your body because you have to be aware of it. And two, ties you deeply with another human being such that it becomes a a dynamic moving chess game that helps you understand how the world works how your body works how interacting with humans work where if you just sit at your desk and you're just armchairing everything you're doing an armchair philosophy armchair theology armchair whatever you want to do it doesn't work that way and you know i think martial arts it's a necessary uh, to be a great philosopher you have to and the necessary condition to be a great philosopher, I think, is to do martial arts, but it's not sufficient, right? It's just doing martial arts by itself. It's not going to do anything. You do have to think and try to understand. Read. 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 Yep, for sure. Read. Talk to people. Those are all important. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't really under, I think there is a, I don't know if it's a, it's, it's a real quote by Aristotle. Or if it's like a quote that was ascribed to him, which is not really by Aristotle, but it went something along the lines of, um, it's a shame for a man to grow old without ever knowing the full potential of his body. And when I first read it, it was like, there's another paragraph to it. And I read it, I thought, man, that's so true. Imagine if I had gone 80 years old and never knew Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I never did boxing, and I never did a boxing class, I never did Muay Muay Thai classes, man, that would be a crappy life because I would think I know stuff, but I don't really know what it means to get punched in the face or get strangled or, you know, what it means to actually inflict pain or have pain inflicted on me by somebody else. And I think knowing that makes me one, um, not want to inflict pain on people, but also helps me understand that, okay. When you're living in this world, you can't really escape pain and suffering, and it's sort of part of life. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 that's another like philosophical reason for practicing martial arts for me. So um, I, w- I want to go back to that. You know, you said like this is a controversial perspective, or you know, um, you're sort of saying that like you know you need to do martial arts to be better at philosophy. Yeah, and you know. It, I mean, we talked earlier about the humble pie aspect that comes with martial arts, but I'm wondering, you know, what, 
what is it that the person who does philosophy that doesn't have doesn't do martial arts is missing they're divorced from reality to me like because essentially to do martial art to do philosophy or philosophy as a general whole is the love of wisdom and to love wisdom you can't simply have knowledge and not implement the knowledge in the world ivory tower and yeah yeah classic academic (laughs) problem right now that we're facing and you guys sort of know this as well right (laughs) yeah um you know, people sitting in the ivory tower telling people how to live, how to act, how to, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you should have mm-hmm. courage. Courage is so easy if you do this. But if you don't do anything difficult in your life, there's no chance that you have courage. There's like zero chance, in my opinion. Oh, right? Pastor IG. <laughs> <laughs> like, there, you know, one thing, <laughs> one thing that, I, yeah, so, okay. So to answer Joel's question, so what those philosophers are missing is doing hard things where they're purposely placing themselves in these hard situations where, like me, if you were like me, you could potentially have your rotator cuff torn, which <laughs> you shouldn't have your rotator cuff torn to begin with, and I'm not espousing that people should get it torn. <laughs> but the pain that I felt was in the pursuit of something greater. And so that pain was worth it to an extent because mm-hmm. I was pursuing some sort of perfection that I, right, perfection, however you conceive of perfection, but in my in jiu-jitsu. Or wrestling, sorry. So what these guys are missing is essentially what it means to actually live out in this world. And martial arts is essentially, to me, a small, intense version of living a philosophical life because you are putting yourself through suffering. Right? Anytime you enter the mats, there's guarantee- there is a 90% chance that somebody's going to kick your ass which means that you're going to suffer for how many, however long the, the, the round goes. And at that point in time, when, when it actually, when it's happening, I, I don't know, Joel, have you, have you done sparring? Have you sparred before? Um, with, no. With your brothers? Well, <laughs> that's what I was like. I mean, I beat up my brothers. I don't know. It doesn't really count. And, you know, not, not, yeah, no. Let's just go with no. Okay. I was going to say, let's just go with yes. Okay. <laughs> You know, I, and Darnell, I'm, I'm assuming you've sparred, mm-hmm. right? So in the, in those situations where if you if you're going up against a really good boxer, right, or if you're going up against a really good grappler, I I stick karate as a kid. Okay, the, the, there are moments in which you feel like giving up because you're just kicking, you're getting your ass whooped, right? You're like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to do this, nothing's working, nothing's working, and sometimes, or maybe most of the time, life is like that. You're trying to do something, doesn't work, so it's. Mm-hmm. In doing those things and placing yourself in these positions, you allow yourself to understand the practical principles of what philosophy is trying to teach. Right at the end of the day, philosophy is trying to teach you how to live in this world. But you don't know you can't live in this world well if you're naively pacifist, right? And you don't know you don't know how to inflict harm, and so you don't understand what mm. it means to suffer. And, and what it means to inflict harm. So, because if you know how to inflict harm, obviously, I don't. If you know how to inflict mm-hmm. harm, in my opinion, you are more careful as to when you mm-hmm. do it. But if you don't mm-hmm. know it, you think it's very like Justin Trudeau. You know, man, the man's a boxer, I believe. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Tim, Tim Moen, the Libertarian Party leader, tried to challenge him to a boxing match. Oh, this shit, one hundred percent, man. But you know, Justin Trudeau's 
you know, he's a boxer. Not I would have expected him to be better because just because he practices. Maybe yeah, it looked boxing. terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looked terrible. But it's it's something that I think they they. So, my my uh, uh, let's say armchair diagnosis to some extent of what you've said. Is, I'm wondering if you know what you started off about the corruptness. Um, I'll 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 circle around in a second. I just want to. So when you were talking about the corruptness in, you know, academia, yeah. it made me think of how we talk about public choice theory with politicians having different incentives. Mm-hmm. And so for academics. You know, you sort of talked through how their incentives are different than the you know regular person because they're willing to make these compromises because well that's how I get tenure or that's how I yeah. move to the next level in my you know career progression, and and I was wondering if you know what you said about the separation from reality for the philosophers is because the philosopher of today is an academic, and yes. and the world they live in is so far removed from mm. the vast majority of the world. Yes. Um, and so to some extent, what you're saying about martial arts is actually a, a means to resolve that problem that the yeah. current academia world creates. Uh, would you say that's fair? Or I think that's, or, a, I think that's a great summary of it. It is the diagnosis to the disease of academia currently. It is essentially the red pill to ivory tower the ivory tower that currently exists right there's man there are so many philosophers i'm not going to name one i'm not going to name anyone but there are many philosophers that i know who are great i mean absolutely brilliant at talking their way out of you know talking their way out of anything finding a little you know you got your oh you this is circular reasoning or oh you made a logical fallacy here you committed a uh, you made a logical error here blah blah they're great you know and they talk about how you know they have all these theories and how to be virtuous oh and i don't believe these things because there's not enough reason or you know like i can go on and on and on but when it comes down to it and then you ask them okay fine for how are you living your life you know, like, are you doing these things? Show me where your money is. Not actually show me where your money is, but, you know, <laughs> do you have skin in the game? Do you have soul in the game of what you're pre- Oftentimes, never the case, right? There are, there's, there, there's this, like, a skeptical philosopher that I know, or a few, I should say. And they're like, oh, I'm actually quite skeptical about reality. I'm like, oh, okay, oh, yeah, you're quite skeptical. Okay, sure, sure. If I punch you, are you going to move out the way? Like, yeah, of course. I was like, well, if you're skeptical about reality and I'm part of reality, <laughs> why the heck would you move out the way? Just get that nosebleed, right? It's <laughs> fake at the end of the day, but no, they're like, oh, I this is, this is, this is, this is just silly for you to say something like this. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's like, it's not silly. If you think the, if you think reality is fake, well, take this, take this bloody punch that I'm putting right in front of your face. Or I'll knee you in the balls, you know. <laughs> tell me then <laughs> if the reality is fake. Like, no, that's not the case. But you know, and and this is the case. I think, uh, unfortunately, the academic cultures has seeped in to theologians and the Christian community as a whole. The more 
um, upper echelon Christians, I should say, the more academic-oriented Christians, I think they do have the same problem, right? Where they're, you know, I think it, I think we should have scholars. We should have Greek scholars, people who are experts on Hebrew, people who are experts in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and John, blah blah blah. I think we should all have it. But, but if you're a Christian or if you practice any sort of faith, right? What matters is not how well you know your Greek or parsing your Greek. <laughs> you know, it's uh, parsing your Greek verbs. It's like it's not. It's not at the end of the day. That's not it. Right? It's whether you live and you have courage. Because application, application is at the end of the day that is what matters. Right? The whole book of James is essentially that. I never mm. understood James until I practiced martial arts. I, and I'll, mm. I'll be completely honest. Right? I did. I double majored in theology, and James was always a book. It was like, okay, cool, cool story, bro. Like moving on to the next book. Until I practiced martial arts, I never really understood James' emphasis. On, you know, he says, "Works without faith is dead. faith without works is dead." And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, duh. But then <laughs> when you actually, yeah, right, that's right, realize it, you're like. <laughs> Oh, okay, this is what he's talking about. Like you can't you know, you can't have people say they're Christian and oh I believe in, you know, I believe people should have courage, but then when the government comes pressing down pressuring you to do certain things or or telling you to believe certain things or you know, telling you that, oh, you know what? Euthanasia is great for people. Like pff, everybody should get euthanized. Everybody who's old and their grandma should get euthanized. And Christians like, Yeah, I guess so, or they'll say yeah, my vote doesn't really matter. Like, I don't think I'll just stay at home. I don't think it's important to to engage in public conversations because you know, you know, I I want to live my Christian faith by myself and not. Uh, it's like, listen, that's not how it works. You want courage? You want you want to practice any of your virtues? You, you have to. You know, you don't become. I mean, I'll give you. Well, if you stay with virtue, you don't become courageous overnight. You don't become courageous when this big battle happens, and you have to, you know, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you, all of a sudden, you, all of a sudden, you have courage. Courage yeah. is built over time with mm-hmm. small incremental wins that you accomplish throughout yes. the day or throughout the weeks, right? Yeah, I'm writing it down. I'm writing it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Taking notes. That's good. And I think that's what people have forgotten that you know, virtue is not something that. You produce just overnight when this big bad thing happens, and you all of a sudden you're like mm-hmm. the most virtuous. Guy. Yeah, that, that that doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. It happens when you're winning oh small fights, and you're like, when the big fight comes, you're prepared. Like, oh, okay, yes. this this yes. is it. I can take it on. But you know, I I know that Darnell. I think Darnell and I had this conversation where Darnell was saying that he does something or a few things, a few difficult things every day to, you know. Sort of callous as mine, if I can use it, if I can use mm-hmm, that term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that I think is so crucial. And I wish more people did that. And, you know, and that's something that I've practiced since, you know, to answer Joel, going back to Joel's question of what has changed in life since, you know, our, our son, Kazing Roman, our other, I would say, son died, is that doing these small, difficult things that I definitely don't want to do when I wake up or, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot I was supposed to have a cold shower today. <laughs> God, it's like, if I have a cold shower, I know I won't be able to sleep for you know, an extra hour because I'm going to be fully awake. But I'll go do it. 
because I know that if I don't do it, then tomorrow I'll feel like shit and like, ah, oh, I missed it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are small things that I think yeah. are very important. Yeah. Yo, IJ, man, I, I, start, I started doing the, 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 the warm shower. Usually I take hot showers, but I'm working towards the cold, so I'm doing warm showers right now. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay man, that, that's a step, man. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Man, you're in Canada. You should just you should have just started with the polar dips. Oh no. man, no, Try no, 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 no. That's okay. <laughs> IJ, if people want to get a, in touch with you, man, where can um, they get, find you? I'm on Twitter. And I, you know, I have like at IJMAKN, and then. Um, they can find Kazingram Dialogue, K Z I N G R A M Dialogue on Google Podcast, or they can go to the Kazingram Dialogue, um, Kazingram Dialogue.com website, and I'm there. Or LinkedIn. You know, I'm on and LinkedIn. then, hey, 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 plug your blog. Plug your blog as well. Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a blog that I have actually I haven't written in a while. Um, it's called. It's okay. They can still subscribe. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. I J M A K A N dot. Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, and that's the blog is titled "Becoming Anti Fragile," and essentially it's talking about things that I do or things that I think about of or how I conceive of the world around me and how I should act in the world. I think that's the best summary for that one. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll, we'll put we'll put those links in the show notes for sure. Yeah, okay. definitely. Cool. That way, uh, they don't have to hit rewind. But yeah, we'll make sure uh, put all your stuff in the show notes and. Yeah, we definitely uh, appreciate, uh, let's just say, your two cents. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. You know, it's an honor to be on your show. Oh. I listen to it, you know, and I always enjoy it. I try to share episodes with my friends and I, you know, it's it's something that I, wa- I, I want more people to listen to and I think it'll be helpful. I think, I think it's helpful you know, unfortunately, I, f- I say unfortunately not because <laughs> I, I say unfortunately because people have a tendency of thinking that oh, you know, people from two different two guys who I guess I'll use the mon term of a black and a white guy. Oh, they can't have a good conversation, or they can't be friends. And I, you know, I, there are some people I know who think that. You know, mm-hmm. sounds like a bunch of racists. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I see you and me both, man. You and me both. Yeah. So, you know, having these conversations, I think it's crucially important. I, I hope your listeners uh, continue supporting you guys. I think you, you know, I don't know if you guys are going um, towards the route of paywall or Patreon, but you know, if you guys think about it, I'm sure you'll have. I'll yeah, be one of your some... supporters. Yeah, we, yeah, we got, we got some, we got some stuff in the works. So. Oh, I'm giving I'm giving secrets away. <laughs> oh yeah, no, 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 it's good. No, no, it's good. That's good. Thank you, thank you, IJ. Thank give, you for coming give him a on. Teaser. Yeah, no, no. Thank you for coming on, IJ. Um, as the listeners can hear, yeah, it was um, it was a really good show. And yeah, Joel and I've been on your show, right? And and, oh, and you've yeah. been helpful for us. So um, yeah, it was it was a long time coming. So thank yeah. you for coming. Yeah, yeah. On, we man. hope we hope we have more listeners like you who share the you know, podcast and, and promote us. So yeah, we're, we're yeah. grateful, man. I appreciate it. And and definitely appreciate you coming on the show and, and, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, some of our listeners, you know, if they if philosophy is their thing, um, and even if it's not, I think, you know, those conversations, uh, around philosophical issues have more value than, than, you know, most people think because you're, I would, argue, you know, I would suggest that 
what you're doing is not the ivory tower version of philosophy it's it's you know actually having conversations with people who you know live out these things or mm. or actually are you know uh, grounded so yeah exactly. I, I definitely uh you know don't miss an episode so hopefully uh, a couple of our listeners will subscribe to check it out subscribe yeah thanks for having me here guys yeah thank you later man please peace but you heard me does that make sense Madden and Mitchell Media.